In the last year, I have been recommended the same TV show over and over and over. It's been wildly popular with all kinds of people, and the people have really fallen in love with the main character of the show. And as I've asked people, what do you love about this show? They often say, you know, it's just so hopeful. It's just so hopeful. It gives a picture of maybe what, what the world could be if there was good, if there was hope, if there was belief. And it appears that the runaway success of the show, something that basically everybody involved with its production has been completely surprised by, is almost directly tied to the darkness of the last two years and the craving that people have for hope in the midst of hard times. But let me ask you a question. What if you could actually experience hope? What if you could actually experience hope in hard days? Wouldn't that be better than living vicariously through the hope of a sitcom? Wouldn't that be better than just numbing our disappointments? What if you could actually know hope? And I know it's more tempting to admire someone else's hope than to practice hope ourselves. I feel that temptation too. I think the reason it's so tempting is because who hasn't hoped and ended up disappointed? Who hasn't hoped and ended up feeling abandoned? Who hasn't put their hope out and felt like it was returned with nothing? Some of the greatest hurts and wounds of living life are when our hopes let us down. To hold on to hope only to be disappointed. And nothing challenges hope like seasons of suffering, trial, and hardship. So today we look at one of the most counterintuitive passages in Romans. Romans chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. And as impossible as it might seem, this is what we find out. You can know hope even in the midst of heartache. You can know hope even in the midst of heartache. Let me read Romans 5, 2 through 5. And then I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And there's an invitation for you to respond and say, thanks be to God. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul walks us through the beauty of a confident hope. He walks us through the beauty of a confident joy that's filled with hope by starting at the end and walking us back to the beginning. Paul wants us to see the mountaintop of confident hope before he takes us through the twisting valleys of the path that gets us there. So I want us to follow this path with Paul by beginning in verse 2. Look at it. Through him, who's this him speaking of? Well, it's just the verse before, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 2, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul, before he begins to talk about suffering, before he begins to touch the nerve endings of our heart, he reminds us of where we are standing and how we got there. Paul reminds us of what we have been exploring for the past three weeks. We have been brought into peace with God by grace 
through faith in Jesus. Paul wants us to see that the ground underneath our feet is unshakable. It is the peace that we have with God and the righteousness of God that we have received by virtue of the work of Jesus Christ. You see, we have right standing with God. We have been made righteous. We have peace with God through Jesus. And this peace that we have with God can never be taken away. And Paul is saying, listen, because we have obtained access by this faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope, of the glory of God. Because of what God has given us in Jesus, we can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What does it mean to rejoice? Well, it means to give God the adoration of our heart. It means to give God the affection of our heart. When we rejoice, we take what the mind knows and we let it drop to the experience of the heart and then we give that back to God. That's what rejoicing is. Rejoicing is taking the truth you know and turning it into praise. That's what rejoicing is. When we sing our songs together, when we worship together, we are rejoicing. We are taking the truth that we know and we are turning it to praise. That's what rejoicing is. And with rejoicing, there is always an element of anticipation, always an element of longing. Rejoicing this side of heaven always has a bit more than we can grasp. The truth is always a bit more true than we could know. The truth is always a bit more beautiful than we could imagine. Rejoice has a dimension of longing and adoration. Maybe you felt that as we sing a song. Have you ever been singing a song in praise and felt like, do I really believe this? Do I really know this? Do I really want this? I have that experience every week where I go, could it possibly be true? Could it be this good? My heart has a hard time believing. See, rejoicing always has an element of grasping, of longing, of feeling like the goodness and the truth and the beauty of the thing we praise is just just a little bit further than the arms of our heart can grasp. We look forward in anticipation. We can get excited. We can be glad and rejoicing. But it also has a dimension of longing. Feeling like, God, could you just make it so? Just, could it be here now? We want it now. We, desire is a part of rejoicing. And all of this rejoicing in verse 2 is aimed at this. We rejoice in hope. We rejoice in hope of what? Of the glory of God. Now, we talk a lot about glory, and we talk a lot about God's glory. It's one of our four foundational truths. God is glorious. He satisfies the deepest desires of our heart. It's true. God is glorious. But the glory of God that Paul's mentioning here, this phrase is used with a particular reference in mind. It is the end of the world. This phrase here, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is a reference to what elsewhere is called the day of the Lord. This phrase is used with reference to when the Lord will return and complete what he has started. This glory of God is the restoration of the glory lost by Adam and Eve. It is the renewal of the world. It is the day when all the broken things are made whole and all the wrong things are made right. It is when God will restore the glory of his people. This glory of God is heaven. This glory of God is heaven. And heaven for the Christian is the most triumphant day. 
Heaven is the day that we are built to long for. Heaven is the reason we have a holy discontentment with the way the world is now because a day is coming when it will be better. It will be what God has intended. It will be what we desire. This is a triumphant day because it is a day where all the wrongs are made right and where, as J.R.R. Tolkien said, all the sad things come untrue. This is the glory of God. This is the day of the Lord. And for the Christian, it's a triumphant day. But for those who persist in rejection of God, they get exactly what they want. It is a day of sorrow because their greatest nightmare has come true. The glory of God that they have rejected has returned. The day of the Lord, the glory of God is a place of rejoicing. It's a place of hope for those who believe that God is who he says he is and has done and will do what he has done and what he says he will do. This is a good day. This is a good day because it is the day where the world is put back to rights. It is a day when suffering ceases. You see, for the Christian, the future is not uncertain. It is guaranteed. Christian hope isn't some kind of naivety. It's not some kind of illusion. Christian hope is not a fairy tale. It's not a feel-good sitcom. It's a lived reality apart from which life in this broken world is near impossible. Do you feel overwhelmed with the brokenness of the world? You should. Because it is broken beyond your repair. I've spoken to so many in the last year and a half. And they'll say something like this. It just feels like things are getting worse. And it feels like there's nothing that I can do about it. I felt that. Just feeling like, will there be an end to this bad? Or does it just keep getting worse forever? Heaven is the promise that it doesn't keep getting worse forever. Heaven is the promise that the bad that we know now will come to an end. Heaven is a promise that all the hurts of the world will be healed in God's time. God hasn't just done something in the past. He's going to do something in the future. We often speak of heaven. We often speak of the day of the Lord or the glory of God like one would speak of a fairy tale. We treat it like something that we hope might happen, but that just feels too good to be true. And let me tell you, heaven is too good to be true. But it is. But it is. What God is going to do is gloriously good because it repairs the world. Heaven brings healing to the things that hurt the most. And heaven is coming to our hurting world. This is where Paul begins, but it's not where Paul ends because Paul anticipates the question that you and I might ask. Okay, but what about now? What about all the life between? I believe that heaven is the hope of the world, or I want what you're talking about when it comes to heaven, but there's all this life between. What about the trials of today? This is where Paul takes us. Look in verse 3. Not only that. So he's saying, listen, it's good to rejoice in heaven. But not only that. Now, what you might expect Paul to do here is not what he does. You might, might expect Paul to say something like, we rejoice in the hope of heaven. 
But not only that, God will comfort us in the suffering of now. That's not what he says. Look at it in verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. That's not what you expect. This is why it's one of the more counterintuitive passages. And I know how this sounds. It sounds like the kind of strength that would be required for this is impossible. How could someone rejoice in suffering? And and when we read this, it can be a little bit confusing. Let me just maybe clear it up. Paul isn't saying that we are glad to suffer. Paul isn't saying we should go out looking for suffering. Paul isn't saying we should just be resigned to suffering. We should just accept that that's how it is and just move on about our days. No, no, no. Paul is saying we can rejoice even in the midst of our sufferings. We can rejoice even when we are suffering because we have a hope that a day is coming when all the sorrows of our suffering will be undone. A day is coming when suffering will be no more, when there will be no more grief, when there will be no more sorrow, when there will be no more pain, when there will be no more death. Paul is placing us in the tension between two absolute certainties for the Christian. He's saying, listen, behind you, you have a righteousness and a peace that you can never lose, and in front of you, you have a home in heaven that will never be taken away. How can you rejoice in your sufferings? Because behind you, you have the righteousness of God and you have peace with God and it can never be destroyed. It can never be removed. It can never be unraveled. You can never lose it because you never could gain it. God has given it to you freely in Jesus. It is as fixed and certain as your very existence. And in front of you is heaven. And as wispy and as cloudy and as mysterious as heaven seems to us, it is as certain as the resurrection of Christ. It is as certain as the righteousness of God and peace with God that God has granted us in Jesus. We can rejoice in our sufferings because we know these two absolute certainties and God has guaranteed them. Before we talk about the path of confident hope, because Paul was about to lead us in a twisting path. And I just want to prepare you for it, because Paul is about to say some things that you and I, this will be a message we we don't want. This will be a part of Paul's words that will chafe against us. But before we talk about this path, I have to state a few things clearly. The first, suffering is not good, even if it can produce good results. Suffering is not good, even if it can produce good things, good results. Why? Because suffering is a result of sin and man's rebellion. It's not what God intended. So God can do good things through suffering, but suffering is not good. It's not what God has intended. You're not supposed to be happy about suffering, okay? You're not supposed to just be content with it. You're supposed to be upset with suffering. You're supposed to be frustrated and discontent with the world that will perpetuate it and with the brokenness of a world that is marked by it. Suffering is not good even if it can produce good things because suffering is a result of sin. It's not what God intended. Suffering will one day end because God will make it end. And here's the most crucial thing you have to hear from me. We'll talk more about this in a minute. God isn't detached from suffering. Suffering is a reality. It's a reality that every worldview, every religion, every ideology has to deal with suffering. Everyone does. It is a reality of life in this world for everyone. 
and find me another story where the God of that world steps in and says, I'll take suffering upon myself. Let me give you a spoiler. You won't find it. God isn't detached from our, our suffering. The Son of God suffered, and he is not detached from the impact of suffering. And when Paul uses the word suffering here, he means something in a specific sense and in a broad sense. And it's important that you hear me out here, because this passage, sometimes it can feel like it's all-encompassing, but there's a specific and a broad sense. The specific of what Paul is addressing here is persecution of the church. Paul is talking about persecution of the church. That's the specific. But that is a manifestation of a broad experience of suffering in our world. So what is suffering? Well, in a broad way, suffering is enduring physical, emotional, spiritual, or psychological impact as a result of life in a broken world. Suffering is experiencing or enduring physical, emotional, spiritual, or psychological impact as a result of life in a broken world. Sometimes suffering comes upon us through direct means, meaning that we experience suffering because something directly has happened to us. Sometimes suffering is a result of something that happens indirectly in the world of which we're caught up in. Sometimes suffering is the fruit of a bad thing that we have done. And sometimes suffering is the fruit of a bad thing that someone else has done. Suffering comes in all different shapes and sizes. Suffering is like a fingerprint. It's always unique. It's always unique. Paul has started us out on the mountaintop of rejoicing and hope of the glory of God, of pointing us to heaven, because he knows that the only way we can make it through the valley of the shadow of death is to hold within our hearts the hope of the mountaintop's glory and beauty. And Paul can speak to this with some level of confidence, because Paul has suffered. I don't know how familiar you are with the story of Paul, but it was a total mess, and I'm not just talking about before Christ, I'm talking about after that. This man is shipwrecked, he is imprisoned, he is beaten, and eventually Paul is martyred. Paul has suffered, he has been persecuted, he has seen loss, and he has been beat down. And Paul knows that we can make it through the valleys of life because we have seen the mountaintop of heaven. He knows that we can make the climb because we know the view when we get there. We know where the valley leads and we know that Christ has walked it before us. And Paul is about to say some things that could be confused. You might read the next few verses that we're going to get to, and you might think this is just Paul's version of that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. But Paul isn't a self-help influencer. Paul isn't Jocko Willink or Joe Rogan or Glennon Doyle telling you that you just got to toughen up and work through it, that you're worth not suffering. Paul is not a blue check guy. Paul is speaking to you from experience. Paul is addressing the realities of life in a broken world. And he's saying this, the story doesn't end in the valley of the shadow of death. But God is working even in the valley. He's working in the valley. Look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Suffering does something in the valley. God produces fruit in our life in the midst of those valleys. Let me give you a few things that suffering does. Suffering exercises the muscle of hope. Suffering exercises the muscle of hope. When we're comfortable, it is easy to grow complacent. 
When we're comfortable, it is easy to believe that we can have heaven here on our own terms. But when we're suffering, we become increasingly aware of two realities. One, the comforts of this earth will never satisfy the deepest needs of our life. And two, we have no control over this world. Suffering exercises the muscle of hope. Sufferings and trials, they stretch our capacity and desire for the end of suffering. Suffering limbers us up for the hope of heaven. Suffering opens us up to say, there must be something better. There must be something good. There must be an end to this. When we suffer and when we endure trial, we are softened up towards the brokenness of the world. And within us, a hope begins to awaken for a day when suffering will end for good forever. Sufferings exercise the muscles of hope. But they also shape us. Sufferings shape us. It turns out that as Rick Warren has said, God doesn't waste a hurt. God doesn't waste a hurt. Sufferings shape us. How do they shape us? Well, first, sufferings produce endurance. Sufferings produce endurance. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a letter to his sister, he wrote this. I think God is nearer to suffering than to happiness. And to find God in this way gives peace and rest and a strong and courageous heart. I don't know if you know much about the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and a theologian in Nazi Germany who continued to cultivate a vibrant Christian witness and resistance to Nazi ideology and Nazi power, and was eventually in prison, where he wrote this letter from, and then was eventually killed. This is a man who was well acquainted with the sufferings of the world, well acquainted with persecution as a result of Christian witness, and with the trials that come with endurance. You see, courage comes with the challenge. Courage comes with the challenge. We want to be courageous but we don't want the challenge. There's an old country song that kind of gets at this tension. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Courage comes with the challenge and hope comes with the hurts because endurance through suffering and trials, they strengthen us. Strengthen us. Suffering produces endurance. It's one of the ways that suffering shapes us. Another way that suffering shapes us, endurance produces character. Endurance produces character. Crawford Lawrence, pastor, a life well lived, he says this, you don't have convictions unless you have been tested. That's tough. That's a, that's a tough word. You don't have convictions unless you've been tested. You see, character emerges as the fruit of trial-tested convictions. I mean, let's just give a basic example. It's easy to say God is good when we are in the bright days of easy living. It is much more difficult to say God is good when we are in the dark night of suffering. Right? Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. As our character grows, as we become people of time and trial-tested convictions, our hope grows deep. And now we have ended where Paul started us. Our hope for the day of the Lord, our hope for heaven grows deep. And we begin to feel a holy discontentment with the way of the world. A 
a holy discontentment with the way of the world. Suffering shape us. We don't want them. It's not what God has intended. But God has chosen to work good even through evil. He's chosen to work formation in us even through brokenness. Ask someone who's been in a season of suffering. And they will testify that while they are glad that God has brought them through the valley and they have no desire to return to that place, God worked in them in the midst of it. Billy Graham said this, Mountaintops are for views and inspiration, but fruit grows in the valley. Fruit grows in the valley. Where does our confident hope come from? If it ends with rejoicing and hope of the glory of God, of looking to heaven, if that's the end, if that's the viewpoint, if that's the mountaintop and the twisting valleys that lead us there is a world marked by suffering and brokenness, where does it begin? How does confident hope start in our heart? Well, this is where Paul leaves us in verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In verse 5, we find ourselves at the beginning of the trail up the mountain. What is the foundation of the ability to rejoice in our sufferings? It is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. It is that God pours his love into our hearts through the very presence of God in our lives. That's the secret to suffering as a Christian. At the bottom of all things, when we feel dragged to the utter depths, we are met not with the absence of God, but with his presence. In the corners of our heart and the darkest nights of our life, who do we find there waiting for us? God. Not surprised, not caught off guard, not detached, not resigned, not passive. We find God. And we find the warmth of his hearth. And we find the kindness of his heart. This is Paul's hope. And this is the Christian's hope. Not that we won't suffer in this life. We will suffer in this life. You have suffered in this life. The foundation of our hope is not that we won't suffer in this life but that we won't be abandoned in that suffering and that God is going to bring it to an end. That God is going to bring it to an end and that he won't abandon us as we wait. You see, the Holy Spirit lives among God's people and he works in us to help us see, experience, and live in the love of God and the presence of Christ, even in the midst of our sorrow and suffering. We can rejoice in our sufferings because heaven is coming, God has saved us, and Christ by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, is with us. Sometimes it's easy to forget this. And I know it's easy to forget this because I have been with you in your suffering. And maybe we've prayed together. I, I can see the faces in the room. And I know that some of us have prayed together in dark nights. And maybe I told you this, I often say this, I often ask, hey, can I hold your hands? Because it's hard to believe that Christ is with us in our suffering. And I'll say, as close as I am to you right now, Christ is nearer still. And I believe it. 
And I've often told people, even if I have to hold this belief for you right now, I will hold it. Because he is closer than we could know. Closer than I could get. Everyone has endured suffering. And this last year and a half has been unique in that so many of us went through so much of the same. Now, it impacted us all differently. I know that. I'm aware of it. I know that it's washed over us in ways that I'm aware of and unaware of. And it's important that we remember we don't measure our sufferings against each other. It's not a contest, and it's a con- if it was, it would be one that nobody would want to win. But we don't measure our sufferings against each other. I can look around this room, and I can see the unique sufferings that are present in here. And there are ways that you've suffered and been tested that, that I don't know, and there are ways that I've suffered and been tested that you don't know. But this last year and a half, there was so much of it that was a shared vocabulary. Like it was, it was kind of a shared experience that we went through. And when COVID showed up in full force in March of 2020, I immediately knew it was going to impact our church in all sorts of different ways, but I immediately knew it would impact my home in a unique way. Many of you know this, but for those who may not, my, my wife has a, has a high-risk condition. And because of that, we were at the just top, top, tippy-top of risk when it came to COVID exposure. And when things started coming down the line, it was like, okay, it's a pulmonary condition. It affects the lungs. And we were just terrified. I mean, there were so many nights where we just would lay sleepless, terrified of what would happen if we were exposed. And we felt caught because it was such an isolating thing. I mean, all of us experienced this in one way or another. But this was unique for all of us in that initially early on, all of us kind of had to go, okay, this is really tough, it's kind of scary, and we all have to be away from each other. So we all just kind of kind of slipped into our islands. And it's hard to suffer, but it is terrible to suffer alone. There were so often we'd ask the Lord, like, why this? Why now? Why this for our people? Why this for our community? Why this for our nation? Why this for the world? Why this for our home? And I know we weren't the only ones. Some of you saw firsthand loss in your family or among friends. Some of you felt paralyzed by the merging of work and home, and you began to feel like a failure on every front. Some of you began to doubt the goodness of the Lord. Some of you lost jobs. Some of you felt trapped. Almost all of us had a moment or had a season where we felt alone or abandoned. And if you didn't experience this in the past two years, I know that you have experienced it in your life. And if you haven't experienced it in your life, I can promise you it will happen. It is the twisting valleys of life this side of heaven. You will find yourself in what the old church fathers called dark night of the soul. You've been betrayed or you will be betrayed. You've endured heartbreak or you will endure heartbreak. You've gone through a miscarriage or you will go through a miscarriage. You've buried a loved one too soon or you will bury a loved one too soon. You've been unjustly accused or you will be unjustly accused. You've been treated unjustly or you will be treated unjustly. Our sorrows are many and varied like fingerprints, but we all have them or we will have them this side of heaven. And we can never fully know the sufferings of each other. 
We can't. But God does. God knows. God knows the weight of our suffering. God knows the weight of our fear. God knows the weight of our loss. God knows the weight of our sorrow. He isn't attached. He isn't far. He is nearer to us than we could imagine. The psalmist writes, you have kept count of my tossings. You have caught all of my tears in a bottle. Are they not in your book? It is hard to remember that God never forgets us. Romans 5, 2 through 5, it tells us that we can cultivate hope in the heartache. It's not naive or ignorant of the sufferings of the world, and neither is the person who wrote it. We can experience hope in the heartache for three reasons. One, we hold out the hope of heaven. Two, we don't try to journey the trail alone. And three, God is working in us even in the midst of the valleys. It's not the message we want. It's not what we want to hear. We want to hear the false promises that come to Christ and you will never see a sorrowful or suffering day again. It's not what God has for us. Something greater is coming, but we walk a valley with Christ until it comes. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, for your mercy and grace, and we acknowledge that we stand in desperate need of it. God, you have revealed yourself as Emmanuel. God with us, even in the midst of our suffering. And so I pray for those who today suffer in silence. They feel alone, they feel abandoned, they feel forgotten. May they come to believe that Christ is nearer still. God, I pray for those who suffer today and they feel like the season of suffering. The dark night has become dark years and it feels like the cloud remains above. God, give them a felt experience of the hope of heaven and help us as a church family hold up their arms in the twisting valleys of life. God, and for those who are leaving a season of suffering and they just don't know if they can ever recover, Spirit of God, begin to heal and repair. We pray these things in the name of Christ. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.